KZSU FM Stanford. Welcome to another edition of Hearsay Culture. My name is Dave Levine. I'm an associate professor at Elon University School of Law and affiliate scholar at the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford Law School, as well as a visiting research collaborator at Princeton's Center for Information Technology Policy. Today, I'm very excited to have on a guest that is not typical for Hearsay Culture, but as I do my introduction, you'll understand quickly as a Hearsay Culture listener why this is a great guest. My my guest today is Dave King, drummer for, among other groups, perhaps most famously, however, The Bad Plus. Uh, the jazz, rock, fusion, there's a variety of names that, that The Bad Plus has been given over the last 16-odd years that they've been in existence, but a very successful jazz trio involving Dave, Ethan Iverson on piano, and Reed Anderson on bass. So... With that introduction, why would Dave be an outstanding guest for Hearsay Culture? Well, the answer is not that I am a fan of the Bad Plus and Dave's drumming, although that is true, but rather that Dave founded a couple of years ago um, a video podcast that you can find on YouTube called Rational Funk. And on Rational Funk, uh, as Dave describes it, it's a complete instructional program for musicians of all skill levels featuring tips, tricks, inspiration, and here's the fun part uh, for purposes of a hearsay culture industry secrets from dave and so the show that he produces periodically although regularly uh for consumption on youtube involves everything from how to play the drums to broader observations about the music business about technology and the music business about how to get work in the business and so we are going to have a pretty wide-ranging discussion today about everything from the role in technology of technology and music today to dave's experience putting together this very very entertaining uh, video podcast on YouTube. The show itself uh, shows up as uh, as episodes that run roughly about 10 minutes, give or take, um, and they're uh, interrupted occasionally uh, with some vignettes and other commentary, but it's a very clever and entertaining uh, program that I have listened to uh, while I'm driving, but not, to be clear, watching the video, but merely listening to the audio, which is entertaining enough. Um, to give you a taste of the show, and this is really just a snippet, um, I thought it would be useful to play a portion of Rational Funk episode 20. 21, of course, audio only, where Dave talks a little bit about his use of laptops when he plays the drums. So what do I do? I really freak him out. I play that kind of 60s free jazz meets <clears throat> an older jazz feel meets uh, another time where people had a connection to the music with their body and their spirit. And I bust out the laptop. One of the things that I've become known for lately is I will have a laptop set up that is doing nothing because I don't even know anything about laptops or computers at all, and anybody who knows me knows that. But just bust out a laptop, a lot of times I'll put it on a conga, and I look at it every now and again. So this and so that gives you a little bit of a clip. Now, Dave goes into some drumming, and then in that clip, uh, he's playing the drums, and then occasionally he will stop and fiddle with the laptop and then continue. Um, and while you may have heard that clip and thought, terrific, uh, Dave Levine, uh, you've brought on a guest who has admitted on Rational Funk that he knows nothing about laptops. Um, I think there's actually some insights that we can uh, derive from this discussion. So I'm very excited to have Dave on today to delve into these issues. Uh, by way of some 
background. Uh, Dave has been playing drums for decades. Um, he is from Minneapolis. Uh, he co-founded a variety of bands, including the Bad Plus in New York City in 2000. He's performed music in 75 countries and six continents. He's appeared on over 50 recordings. Uh, there's also been a documentary done about him, which is also fun to watch. Um, and he is a very prolific musician who's played with everyone from Bill Fussell, to Josh Redman, Dewey Redman, Jeff Beck, Tim Byrne, Hank Roberts, and we can go on down the list. Um, Dave is joining us via telephone, uh, emphasizing his lack of using computers. We are not on Skype today, but in fact, we are. he is joining us via telephone from Minneapolis. Dave, thank you so much for joining me today on Hearsay Culture. Hi. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So, Dave, let me start off with a question that I ask lots of folks, um, but I think that is would be useful here. Tell our listeners a bit more about your background, and particularly about launching Rational Funk. Well, um, you know, I've uh, been a professional musician for you know, the better part of 25 years, uh, almost 30 years, and I, you know, the music that I have really, um, you know, focused on in, in my career has been music you would put in the sort of like um, non-commercial sort of art spectrum, like avant-garde jazz and, and um, you know, playing with modern dance and, and um, but you know, I played all music. I mean, I've, I love playing pop and rock and hip-hop and things like that, and I've recorded all music, but uh, what I'm really most known for in the world is music you would consider a little bit more on the maybe serious I hate to use things like highbrow, you know, I hate to use like those terms, like hierarchical terms of high art, low art, or whatever, but I'm, I guess I'm more known for, you know, working within the mediums of more serious, um, you know, creative music, improvised music, jazz, all these other things, and also some contemporary classical music. And so I, um, but over the, over the years, I was also known a little bit for kind of a surrealist approach, whimsical approach, not only musically, but also um, I would talk on the microphone at times at some of these shows, you know, because there's no singer in these groups. And I developed this microphone style that became sort of improvisational and abstract that, that, was, that was known in, you know, the circles of fans of these groups. So I, I have an experience of improvising in, a, in more of a comedic um, tone. And um, so uh, over the years, you know, I would be approached by, you know, different people saying, you know, maybe you should do something that was more formal, that investigated not only your relationship with, with music, but also your relationship with sort of surrealist comedy and improvising and all these other things. And I had thought about it for years, and of course, the instructional video as a medium is one that is ripe for parody and, you know, the, sort of the ridiculousness of watching a a tape, you know, I grew up, you could listen, you, know, you could watch a videotape of some drummer that put out, you know, Steve Gant videotape of how to do this or that, and, and, and it was the whole thing felt a little bit ridiculous, you know, you're watching someone, you're trying to do the same thing, or, but there are a lot of instructional videos out there, some of them are actually quite helpful with people, and I don't want to be saying that, that I'm taking them all down, but what I really wanted to do was things that sort of combine the idea of a parody, but it isn't actually that silly, ultimately. It, it becomes this thing where I'm able to inject some things that I, you know, some opinions that I have about not only the creative process and at the industry itself, uh, um, but also kind of that 
Duchampian sort of like destroy the thing you love kind of art concept. So in a way, not to sound pretentious, but it is, it has a ring to it like a contemporary art um, project where I'm trying to kind of um, bring light to the ridiculousness of the entire thing ultimately um, even though you could be playing this really heavy music, introspective music, there's a ridiculous side to sometimes the way we can fixate on details and all of these things that are mainly only important to us. <laughs> it becomes this sort of ego statement. And I'm interested in that, like the ego of the performer and, you know, my own ego and being aware of myself and how serious I take things sometimes and how ridiculous some things are sometimes. I just thought it would be fun to kind of make this this um, series, uh, you know, it's like spoke art kind of series based on the idea that I'm actually a real person out there in the world playing for my living and playing at, you know, like you were saying, like there is a high level that's being performed at as far as, the, you know, my career in jazz and then whatever. But so I'm not playing a character per se, but I actually, you know, I am playing a character, but it is my name and... So it gets complex as to what's the truth and what isn't, and I'm interested in that. And I think the fans of the show, you know, have been touring. They've been. I hope this isn't too long of an answer, by the way. No, no. This is the great thing about the format. um, You know, uh, come up to me and talk about it at the shows, and you know, everyone seems to be that I've talked to really understanding that there is a certain level of subversive um, attack, not only on you know, some of the structures around the music business and ego and all these things, but also around myself and around some of my most important work. I, some, I try to take a lighthearted approach to, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, you know, we're not out, you know, we're just trying to pump beauty uh, into the world via music. And sometimes you could take yourself a little too seriously when you're, when you're doing that. And that's basically how it started. It was really just like, I met a filmmaker friend of mine, and we decided to put it together and try to make a title sequence and do all these things. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm glad that people have, you know, the people that have cared about it seem like they really are like um, devotees of it. And I'll tell you, I mean, you know, again, as someone that's listened to your music for you know pretty much since uh, well before the Bad Plus with Ethan Iverson's piano, um, I've followed your career pretty closely. And you know, and again, you know, hearsay culture being a show, by the way, which is a long form interview. So not only was your answer not too long, that's exactly what this format is. Speaking of formats, Perfect. Um, I'm good at those. yeah, no, and I and feel free, you know, if I can go get a sandwich while you're answering a question, even better. Um, but no, the, it's interesting you mentioned ego. Um, because because I think that's a that's a relevant point here. You know, for many hearsay culture listeners may not be familiar um, with your music, although I think many are. But you know, I you know it, it is not an understatement to say that what you've done with the Bad Plus has had a major impact. I mean, Downbeat, uh, you know, magazine named you the best jazz group of the year, number two uh, on that list, top ten record of the year with the Right of Spring. I mean, you've had a lot of success. How does doing a show like uh, rational funk, and I want to get into that in a little more detail as well as as, as well as technology. Um, help ground you, um, given the success that you have. What is the relationship between that show and the performing schedule that you have, which is very intense, where you have, as you alluded to, lots of fans? Well, it's not difficult to to remain grounded when you play the kind of music we do. I mean, number one, it's it, this is a very very if you're talking about the success of, of you know, an, of a creative music ensemble, a jazz ensemble, all these other forms of non-mainstream music, ultimately, yes, it's a wonderful thing to get to travel and perform your music. And at the same time, it is 
it is not a um, spa level of existence <laughs> with you know what some maybe some successful rock group is is having or whatever. So you ultimately the humility is around you at all times. I mean, yes, it feels amazing to get to to connect with people because that's why we do it. You know, that's why anyone any artist is doing what they what they're doing is they're trying to fulfill something that they themselves have experienced via art. So you want to be a part of the discussion. You want to be a part of the sharing of this thing and the receiving of this thing. So, you know, we're out there and, you know, you're playing to, you know, audiences that are enthusiastic about this kind of music. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you're, you're volley so far back and forth between what you would view as, you know, a life of, you know, some sort of successful thing and, and, and a life of, which, which has a ring to it, like you can just kind of sit back and, you know, take a, take a vacation when you want and do all these other things. We're really full-time creators in this way where you never really feel like you're, you've, you have it made. And I think that's just built into the music and the way that we have to go about touring to make our living and, and, uh, you know, there isn't these massive record sales that you can count on, especially anymore. And so, I mean, uh, I've often found that most people that are in, you know, the, especially this generation where, where the music industry has really been changed so drastically, where you, can, you can't even measure success like you, were, you, know, you could before with record sales or with radio play or with all these other things, because those things have been so you know, turned upside down. I mean, for me, the success of just being able to, to support my family and play music that I have no commercial constraints on, you know, like I'm not making decisions based on how can I appeal to the, to, you know, the largest um, uh, group of people out there. I'm actually just trying to make some things that I think are, can connect with everyone, and maybe that's naive, but I believe that this music can connect you know, to anyone's life experience. But at the end of the day, it doesn't. It doesn't connect with everyone's <laughs> life experience. I don't know if that's via exposure or via you know, music education or via cultural anything. I don't know. I haven't thought too much about it. All I know is there's a big difference between U2 and the Bat Plus. And I think it has more to do with the fact that, you know, what we're doing is very obviously not a commercial radio concept. And so I have to say, it's, it's it, you know... It, it, it's always just truly uh, um, a humble thing right around the corner when you play this music because you never know. You know, every time anybody even comes, we're 15 years in and you're playing in Paris and it's this packed, you know, 400 seats, 500 seats. That's a lot of people for this kind of music. You just all, you're never, you're never just, you know, standing on the side of the stage going, we got it made. You're, you're always going, oh, whew, people came, all right. <laughs> because... You just never feel settled. There's always a rearview mirror kind of um, thing happening in this life with this, and that's fine. And I'm not complaining, but I'm saying that it's not that difficult to stay ground that way. And as far as you know, the show, it, it again, this is a very obscure show. Ultimately, <laughs> I'm not some sort of YouTube star, and I would have canceled it instantly if it would have become that. I knew it wouldn't become that. But what I what I am uh, really uh, surprised by, and also really, it's very gratifying, is that it has had actually a larger impact in the music scene and with musicians and with, you know, just the world of, you know, drummers and musicians and everything. It's much larger impact than I thought it would have. People have really, like, talked a lot 
uh, about it in the scene and to me personally and to say how much they you know they, they find the, the, the comedic elements so refreshing and so at ease and also again like being able to laugh and poke fun at myself I become that much more approachable as well by young musicians or whatever I think a lot of young musicians come up to me and they realize I'm not some scary shaven headed guy that's going to like gro- gro- you know growl at them if they ask me a question about music which is <laughs> In many ways, some of the elders in jazz are sort of like have the reputation of having an attitude, you know. And so, you know, which can be helpful for young musicians as well to get to, to, to you know, to have their, um, their you know, butt handed to them every now and again. But I, I, you know, I just have found that it's just been, it's really been gratifying to because it has taken some time and some work and we have really tried to craft something unique and I'm not sure how much longer I'm going to do it, but I do think it's funny now that, for instance, these days, sometimes if I get recognized somewhere, sometimes it's for the show. Hmm. And, and, and they don't say, oh, the Bad Plus or, or, or these other groups that I do. would be like, oh, my gosh, Rational Funk. And then, you know, you're obviously aware that they're fans of the Bad Plus, but still they're bringing up Rational Funk first. And at first I was like, gosh, I don't know how I feel about this, but now I'm <laughs> a little bit more at ease with it. Well, yeah, you know, I guess you don't want to be cannibalizing fans, although, as you point out, right, you're not looking to retire off of Rational Funk. And perhaps, as you alluded to, you may not be uh, retiring um, off of even the, the greater success you've had so far with the Bad Plus. You, you've hit, and we're chatting with Dave King, a drummer for the Bad Plus and the founder and host of Rational Funk. Um, Dave, you, you've hit on several topics I want to get to. Um, I'm not even sure. It, it's rare that I'm not sure where to start first because there's so much I want to ask about. But I guess I'll say this um, to start off. You alluded earlier to the changing structure um, of the business for musicians uh, and performers, particularly uh, going from record sales and music sales to touring. Um, Hearsay Culture is a show uh, where we focus heavily on intellectual property law and technology. I am not about to ask you a question about law, so uh, don't worry about that. But I do want to ask you a question about that changing business model. There is an assumption made by lots of folks who look at the entertainment business and a music business from a law perspective that says look right because the revenue system has changed in other words now it's about touring rather than records that copyright law is working okay i'm not asking a copyright law question what i'm asking is this do you think as you are performing that a musician can, in fact, have the success in terms of paying their bills, but not just paying their bills, but really getting all of the benefits from their music in a system which no longer focuses on record sales or MP3 sales, but really requires people to go on the road. Yeah, I mean, um, our music is really live music anyway. So in, in jazz, there really hasn't ever been a massive revenue stream from, from record sales. Um, in fact, it's always very heartening to know that record labels are out there putting out records. And, you know, of course, vinyl coming back has been, has been a major thing for the record industry, a way to be able to see some more revenue. I think the most important thing for us is, is when you have a, a label that, that will put out your record, in a way this enables, of course, it's almost like a calling card, it enables um, the aura, uh, uh, you know, the press and everything that follows when you release a record and people pay attention to it and it's critically acclaimed or whatever. This, of course, sets up the, the, the ability to do, uh, to build your live audience, which is what we did. But it's, it, I think the challenges today are just wading through the seas of information 
I mean, there can be, you know, how do you, re how does one go about releasing records today? There are so many ways to do it. And, you know, in many ways, you know, there are many more avenues for exposure. Like, for instance, Rational Funk is a perfect example. I couldn't have done Rational Funk without YouTube. I couldn't have done, I mean, I just put what I want up there. It's a television studio, essentially. Here it is. And they uh, let the audience decide. Those are some amazing advances in just folk art in general. People just out there making outsider art and letting it be seen and heard on a high level sometimes where it can break through the noise. But the record industry, just just the idea of how many, basically how many people are streaming music, which is something that I don't do. I enjoy listening to a record when I listen to it. I tend to listen to CDs and vinyl still uh, to the... To, to the um, to the choruses of laughter from many young people, including my children. But I, <laughs> I still enjoy that idea of that physical, you know, I, that limitation. Some, some, in some way, like, I, I, I want to go out and get it. I want to look at it. I want to look at the artwork on it. I want to look at the personnel, and I want to listen to it and not be interrupted by means of, you know, um, you know, you know, access. And so I, I just think that I have had to even come to grips with the fact that, it, you know, even the small amounts of royalties we would have seen before have basically disappeared. And what happens with that, which, which is negative for us, is that the label then disappears. And so then those forms for you to be able to get exposure and get a publicity team helping you get your thing out there, whereas if you're really busy working on composition, you're really working out your live thing, you're, you're making these records, you know, it helps to have other people working the... Um, publicity and, and all these other avenues to get your name out there. And right now, the, the music industry is in such disarray with streaming and with, you know, all these major artists trying to keep hold of their giant nest eggs because, you know, they, they've got more to lose ultimately than we do. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's been an incredible thing to watch on the transition from you know, making a record, the record goes through this channel and the label puts it out there, there's publicity, people go and buy it. But just watching the early days of people just stealing records, basically, which is just like, oh, I'm just going to steal this record. I'm just going to, I would put out a record in 2006 and you, you would be on someone's, some site for free within that you know, 10 minutes of it being released. So it, that type of thing is very disheartening for me because I know the amount of work that goes into it, and I know, you know, it's not like anybody out here is getting rich in creative music. It just, those types of things allow us to be able to have somebody, another mechanism helping us get out on the road, whereas where we, that's where we can make a living, and that's where we can ultimately have the most positive impact culturally on society. It makes you feel like you're actually doing something by performing this music and, you know, Providing for your family or doing whatever, but also really reaching people and 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 having making people have an experience with you. And I just think that that's the major thing that's affected creative musicians is that labels have folded. People don't want to put out the records, and so you have a sea of these sort of you know tiny labels putting things out that you can barely make a blip on the radar. And there's also some incredibly potent music being made that now doesn't have the cultural relevance that it once had. So you have some, some most potent improvising and, and composition in jazz history is going on right now, but that doesn't have the cultural relevance um, because the sort of mechanisms to get it out to people and have people pay attention, even if it is a small uh, drop in the record-buying public, the fact is is that it, it has even a smaller chance 
of really breaking through the noise because a lot of these systems have just disappeared. They can't survive anymore. And I can't believe any label still put out jazz, you know, because it must be just a zero moneymaker. It's just people out there still caring enough because they love the music. Or they're reissuing vinyl from the old glory days of Blue Notes and, and all these other things where you have the black and white photography and the cigarette smoke and everybody goes, oh yeah, cool, jazz. But actually today there are still these very vital groups and, 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 and great concepts happening in the music, but just fighting for an audience. So we, we've watched this go down. I mean, the Bad Plus is one of the last groups to really benefit from a major label construct in a way where we were never told what to do but we were on a major label, so we were in complete creative control. We were on Columbia Records in the early 2000s, and um, you know, um, we released these records that still had the ability to get heard by more than just a few people that were into this music. We're chatting and, with... Oh, sorry, you know, Dave, go ahead. Yeah. We were fortunate, but we had to hit the road and build the audience that way, and that's what everybody really has to do, ultimately, in rock as well. I mean, in hip-hop as well. I mean, everybody's got a tour. But, you know, these groups that have 9 million downloads of one tune, I mean, we're never going to be anywhere near that in our careers. I mean, that's just not going to affect us as much as it's going to affect Justin Timberlake or, you know, people like that, where they're, they're peak, those guys are, you know, arguably they're insanely wealthy already, but these groups are the ones that are very, um, you know, having to make major adjustments because the labels, of course, are fortified by the sales of these big pop stars more than they're ever going to be fortified by us. We're, we're chatting with the, the modest uh, Dave King of the Bad Plus, and I appreciate, Dave, your candor uh, on these points. You know, I'm going to do my quick public service announcement for the radio station now uh, so we can jump right back in. You're listening to KZSU-FM Stanford and Hearsay Culture. Uh, for those of you who listen to the show regularly, you know that KZSU is a non-profit, non-commercial radio station. This may resonate with you, Dave. Uh, that requires donations from listeners like you to continue its diverse programming. You can either email our underwriting department at underwriting at kzsu.stanford.edu or click on Donate to KZSU at our webpage. Uh, regardless, I hope you keep listening. So, so Dave, you know, let, I, I want to come back to... Uh, and I'm glad you brought this point up. Uh, the, the creativity or and control of that creativity, uh, you know, in the music world today. You know, and you alluded to having that control um, even with signing with a major label like Columbia. And I guess I, you know, I have two questions on that front. First, do you think you were given that control precisely because jazz is not viewed as a heavy money maker for the label, and therefore there's less to lose if uh, creativity is handed over to you uh, without? thinking about it from a more marketing perspective and then secondly and related question is do you think that for groups like the bad plus as opposed to say youtube that you benefit more from technology having the ability to and I, as i'm asking this as a really loaded question to see your reaction right to allow people to sometimes steal where they may not have bought anyway yeah that's a great that's of course one of the great um, sort of chasms that everyone has has fallen into and is trying to figure a way out of or figure out the schematics of, you know, where you're at, that, like, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul. I mean, I don't, I, 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 I can say that most certainly what I've experienced with Rational Funk via just being able to put a TV show out, there's so much, you know, like, you know, half-baked ideas out wherever these forums are, Vimeo, YouTube, everything, and I'm critical of a lot of it myself. 
and I've tried my best to make the best show that I can make for for an audience that's obviously a niche audience. But my, of course, my grand idea was that the the comedy element would would transcend just musicians watching it, and to some extent it has. But of course, to some extent, it's a minuscule amount of views next to someone whose cat just jumped off of you know uh, a roof and into a moving car or something. It's like I, it's a joke compared to like things that have two million views because it's like somebody falling off a skateboard and breaking their nose or something. Right. And so it's like I can't. I can't say to myself that I've created Funny or Die or something like that because I don't have that exposure that major movie stars have and all these other things. I am exposed in the music world and in the creative world, creative music world, and the drum world especially, um, which has been very behind the show. Like I said, the, maybe I didn't mention like the, the magazine Modern Drummer, which is a massive magazine, which I was very lucky to be on the cover of a few years ago before Rational Funk. I, uh, they got really behind Rational Funk when it came out and ended up being nominated for like instructional video series of the year or something like that. Mm. That I thought was hilarious, but also very heartening that people were really seeing that it was actually had these undertones. This type of thing wouldn't have been possible, like I said before. So, like right there, I have experienced a very positive, um, you know, I've tried to use some of those things positively um, to get my uh, artwork or my creative uh, endeavors heard. As far as music, though, you know, as far as, like, somebody, you know, getting more access because they can just hear, you know, one song on YouTube or be able to find the record streaming and just do whatever, well, that is a complex issue only because this music that we play takes a great deal of technical prowess. It is not just, like, you can just pick it up by, you know, like skimming through YouTube clips and then all of a sudden you're like, you, you, you understand, you know, the Coltrane Quartet or something. It's like when I've seen this on the ground when I've gone and taught at universities or in these major music programs at universities where there are younger musicians and you could see the sort of challenge that they're having as far as the attention span challenge to, like, actually sit with these records. I mean, when I was growing up, and sorry to say it, I sound like an old man now, but I was the last you know, LP generation. I mean, I, I'm 45 now. So, I mean, there were, I bought LPs when I was in high school until CDs kind of came along and the CDs were fine too. But an LP was like, you don't change an LP every five seconds. You listen to it. In fact, it sits on your record player sometimes for a week. Mm-hmm. You just keep setting the needle over. And that's a way, in many ways, I got to know the language orally. I, I got to really understand the language, uh, you know, of these great periods of jazz because I sat with it. And I, I was limited. I had to go to the library. I had to find these things. I had to dig through crates of records. I had to do all this other stuff. And as far as when arts are concerned, you know, I mean, yes, modern improvisers that can access within 10 minutes what it took me two years to access. Who knows? It could go either way. It could be such an information overload that a new modern text of, music is appearing, which we, of course, are hearing in pop music with the use of technology and auto-tune and all of these other things, we're hearing a new kind of music emerging. And in jazz, we are hearing a new form of complexity coming out of the music that reflects contemporary classical music or reflects Indian classical music. Um, the, the European jazz scene has gotten much bigger, and they're using more European, um, traditional European harmonic, uh, you know, concepts. 
and all these other things. So there's an interesting thing occurring with the amount of information out there, but at the same time, I'm noticing that there isn't that depth of knowledge of like I, you know, you hit, you hear somebody hit a ride symbol, and you know they've sat with these records or they've sat with these tones, and they're part of the history, and they really you can feel the deep relationship instead of a sort of a skimming relationship. And so I don't know. The audiences are the same. It's like, you know, I'm wondering how deep you're able to get in there beyond like, oh, I like this. You know, well, this is interesting. I mean, actually, a funny story. I heard the other day that um, that the actor Daniel Radcliffe, who's Harry Potter, is mm-hmm. a fan of the Bad Plus. Okay. <laughs> so, so I was like, oh wow. And I thought to myself, how is Daniel Radcliffe a fan of the Bad? I mean, I wanted to know how that happened. You know what I mean? Like, like is he into jazz? Is he into modern jazz? Is he someone who, or did somebody play him a song and he went out and? He's Streamed two of our records and he did go. And I don't mean to make this sound like a name drop. I actually was thinking about laughing because my children are big Harry Potter fans. Of, you know, like every child, every person on the planet seems to be. And it's like, you know, like I wonder how people are accessing the music to the point where if they're not a musician, if they're not someone that's like deep inside the, the market deep inside the, the niche, you know, as an audience member, wh- what is their relationship? Did they stream a record once? Did they, you know, did they, oh, I like this. This is a piano trio, but it doesn't sound boring and long solos and masturbatory and all these other things. I was actually thinking to myself, man, it would be interesting to talk with someone who's like a high-profile artist themselves and maybe outside my genre, how how they access the information to become a fan of this other thing. And that's, does that sound interesting to you? I don't know. I'm only bringing up the Danny Radcliffe thing because it, it caught me off guard. Like, you know, I, that's someone I, I wouldn't necessarily, I don't want to limit. That's not someone I would sit there and think that you're sitting around checking out more obscure jazz groups in the world. You know, well, maybe he's a frustrated pianist or something. I don't know. <laughs> no, Dave, I mean, you know, it's, it's you fun. Know, I don't know if I don't basically I'm saying that because that's a pop personality. I'm not sure that before all of these streaming things that maybe he would have heard the bad plus. That's basically what I'm saying. Like, I do think there's some pros to all of this stuff. Like, people saying, I would have never heard this if it wasn't on Spotify in this restaurant. And I was like, who are these guys? I've heard that a million times now. Like, man, I heard you. I was someplace at a clothing store and somebody had streamed one of your I asked who it was. It was doing this cover of Apex Twin. And they're like, oh, it's the band the bad plus. Oh, and then I got all of your records. I always would stop myself from saying, how did you get all of our records? <laughs> Where did you get all of our records? You know? No, you know, Dave, look, and, and we're chatting with Dave King on Hearsay Culture, recording on March 6, 2016, I should mention that earlier. Yeah, you know, Dave, you, you know, you, you're mentioning all this, and you and I are roughly the same age, um, and uh, like you, um, although I didn't obviously pursue a music career, I am a big music fan, and I would go to stores uh, that were 20 miles away to find a CD that they had ordered and would be in the week later. But I wanted to share with you an experience just from yesterday, and a, a typical one for, for fans of music, uh, but get your reaction to it. So I went to a local uh, record store uh, here in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina called CFGB, the Center for Better Grooves, which is now in the back of a uh, store selling uh, uh, hookah equipment. Um, and, and I go through the jet, which is, which is hilarious in its own right, um, but I go through there, you know, I'll go there once a month, and I'll, I went through their jazz section, and, you know, I, I, you know, I follow enough music, and particularly the, you know, the, the hard bop era uh, of jazz, and I 
I and I dig up uh, a uh, Jimmy Cleveland side called a map of Jimmy Cleveland um, that is an MRC uh, print from 1959. Um, and I wasn't really familiar with the record, but I I know of Jimmy Cleveland, the trombonist, and always know he makes good music. And sure enough, and here's you know here's the kicker for it: it's out of print, so it's never actually been put on CD, um, and therefore it's never been released. So even on all music, it says if you can find this record, right? Go out there and see if you can. And of course, as you point out, I might, is that, am I going to make that my life's work? No, I'm not. I happen to stumble upon it. Um, that stumbling upon information is one that we think a lot about on hearsay culture and think about it from information overload and there's been lots of writing and again this is it leads to a question there's been a lot of writing about what's what has been called by by some scholars including richard latham the economics of attention something you said earlier i want to i want to drill down on in a moment you said that records sometimes would sit on your turntable for a week and it's a great observation because it is absolutely true that you'd be hard-pressed i think to find many folks who are listening to something constantly for a week because of that barrage how you know and and it's a great observation how do you as a musician right break through that right in other words you've taken a genre jazz which as you've pointed out is not the most popular uh form of music even though it's the american art form and there's a rich history of it you're fighting against this cavalcade of all kinds of music how do you break through that miasma, right, given, right, the inability of people to focus for more than a few seconds. What do you do as a musician? What do you do with someone that uses technology? Well, this is, again, like, you know, uh, a very, very complex issue. And, uh, I mean, in many ways, um, I have felt like what you can do is just uh, um, this sort of thing we talk about in the Bad Plus where it's like, um, ignoring pop culture at your peril, but actually ignoring it sometimes gives you an edge. We actually, that's a quote from one of our interviews, and I always liked that. I think the pianist of the band Ethan said that. Like, there's a part of us, you know, we don't do a, a big social media thing, and we don't, you know, I mean, maybe to our detriment. But there's, there's some, there's something that, 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 that I find interesting that you know, when you tour Europe as well, because, you, you know, people are selling CDs and things at gigs in Europe still, and all these other things where you have a C, there's a CD seller from the local area, and they've got all these different titles, and this, people are buying records, and we bring CDs on the road still, and we sell CDs. I think probably much more than rock band would um, sell CDs. In fact, I've toured with rock groups and had CDs these last seasons. It's really... Rock is like either download or vinyl, or you know, or you know, streaming or vinyl. And jazz, you can still actually sell CDs because the, or your audience is such a large age group that um, you know, um, that's one of the things we're actually most proud of. Is I've, 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 at our concerts, you could see seventeen-year-olds with in uh, seventy-year-olds in the audience together, and sometimes children and parents, um, like young, you know, like. People who are twenty, and then they're and they're and they're with their their mom and dad who are fifty, um, and it's like you know we see this all the time. People make it a tradition to come and see us. Sometimes that's families. One of the things that you know I felt like you know how you could you know you think we think about ways we could push this through, and everyone's talking like, well, you know, we were, this is live music. This is music that you have to come and see to really, 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 really. In my opinion, of course, this master records. And I've tried to make great records in my life, 
and pick records that I would sit around and listen to, hopefully. But ultimately, this music really, from the record standpoint, is to really pick your interest in maybe seeing and feeling the energy of this music live, because it is a lot of imp- largely improvised. Um, that means each performance is very unique. That's for, therefore, when you're making a record, even a document, you have to be thinking about the definitive performance of the thing. More often than not, you, you, you will rarely do more than two takes. It is live in the studio, mostly. So, you know, if you get beyond two takes, you start to think you're repeating yourself, you start to you turn in on yourself. Bad Plus is very good at playing one or two takes of tunes, and that's it. You just sign off. That is the definitive performance of this piece, sometimes with a mistake in there, even. Mm-hmm. But if it's a, hopefully a charming mistake, um, we, will leave it, we will leave it in, a happy accident. But, I mean, as far as pushing this music through, ultimately, it's like we, the mountains of things out there to get through to people. I just am always asking myself, how do I make a non-musician hear this music? That's really my thing, is that I believe this music is for everyone on some level. I think there's a joy element to it, a, dis- a, dis- a discovery element to it. Like, you, we talked about discovering something. It is different music. When people wade through the seas, of pop music that all sounds the same. I'm not saying all of it does. I'm just saying a lot of it does. And it's all personality-driven or all these other things. But a lot of times when people finally hear music like this, however they got there, and of course in the golden age of jazz, they were playing standards from the American songbook. They were playing songs from musicals and things that people heard on the radio in the the 40s and 50s. Mm -hmm. Well, we have directly experienced, like, oh, we played a Pixies tune, but we did it completely, you know, we're mostly an original band, but we were no, we have been known for our reworkings of things outside the jazz pr- uh, perspective and, and turning them sort of into vehicles for improvisation. We did that with the Pixies and with Blondie and all these other things. Songs that we love, and people going, I would have never heard you, but I heard your Blondie Heart of Glass and it was so amazing, I got your records and now I'm really into jazz. So part of it for me is always like, man, there's such a larger audience for this music out there, and it just seems so devoured by these quick, you know, fix, sugary, quick fix, commercial, overly hitting every pleasure trigger, no complex emotion, no nothing, see of, you know, like mediocre creativity going on. It's just like, man, audiences are smarter than that. And they're smarter than that for film, and they're smarter than that for dance, and they're smarter than that for whatever. Yet we just can't seem to... <laughs> make executives know these things. Just like we can't seem to make our politicians know anything. That's why we can't seem to make our... It's almost like it has to happen on the ground flow level. It has to happen grassroots. I would just say that we just always feel like, man, come go out and support live music and actually feel what music really is, which is an experience to be had, a celebratory experience to be had in a room with people, a shared experience a visceral experience, a cerebral experience, however you want to have it. The fact is, is that it's a real experience, and we can only hope that our records direct people to coming and having this experience live, and we can only hope that, you know, people can take a moment uh, away from reading an article on their phone while they're listening to the latest, you know, blah, blah. It's like, just take a moment to actually be, be deep with it. And I think film still has this, especially now television, where you can, you know, fix, someone can fixate on House of Cards for six hours, but they can't listen to more than half a song mm-hmm. of somebody's. Right. You know, I mean, music has just got to, like, 
get back on top where <laughs> where I believe that you know it is ultimately the most ancient, the most deep space within people is music. I really believe it. You know, there isn't a person that doesn't love music. So, you know, we just feel like, man, what we do is unique in the world of creative music, jazz, uh, performance art music. Um, we feel that it's a unique space in the art landscape and demand and deserves and demands more more attention. And, and, and how do I get there? I mean, man, I, I, I just have to be in charge, Dave. That's what I'm trying to be. I've got to get in charge. Well, we certainly... Can I say one thing about Stanford? Please, please go, Stanford go, go for it. Absolutely, yes. I taught at Stanford Jazz Camp a few years ago, which is a famous jazz camp where people from all um, experiences and developmental levels uh, in the music come and, and learn from, you know, the uh, professionals. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I had a great time there. But I would have, you, you get, you get given, you, you're given an ensemble of, of students from all age ranges and all unbelievably all experience levels, all in the same ensemble, and you have to put together some music with them and have a concert at the end of the week. <laughs> so it was a very unique experience for me. Your hand is like, I had a banjo, I had like a, I had like a classical pianist, a couple of jazz saxophone players, I had a, I had a guy playing a guitar, I had I, I, a bluegrass guitar player, I mean, I had to come up with a repertoire for all of this, and um, the guitar player was an older gentleman, and he just couldn't get on the same page with what we were trying to do. I mean, he felt obviously insecure and all these other things, and I was trying to, you know, hook everybody up. And the guy was just saying, oh, and I, I, I you know, I, he would interrupt me constantly. He was, I was like, man, just, just allow yourself to just get into a different space here. And he was very uptight, and then I finally, he interrupted me about 400 times during the course of the first three days, and I um, said the words to him in, in front of everyone in the class but I was gonna if he didn't shut up I was gonna throw him out the window <laughs> and 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 uh, so this does open up the question and we're chatting with Dave King of the bad plus Dave I was gonna ask you this earlier and you mentioned it because I think if any film has given attention to the jazz world it is the film whiplash from last year um, and you mentioned bald musicians and so I have to ask you right the JK Simmons character the core character as a drummer right where the drummers are the target of the Simmons character how accurate in your experience was that film um, well I mean I would hate to you know be as critical as I really actually, if I was to be really honest with you, I um, I thought it was a terrible film. Okay, yep, but tell I, me. But I, but I also thought it was a bad film in general. Mm -hmm. Like, not even because it was so inaccurate as far as music and how one even approaches playing the drums or music. It was If, if it would have been like a film honoring like war veterans and it was that off of the truth, there'd be like an uprising, but, mm -hmm. but because it's just music, you can just be completely, people can just be completely clueless to how it's made or how it's studied or how it's whatever. And it's like, Oh, that was a great film because it was suspenseful. And, but I, was, I thought it was insanely, the suspense moments and the tense, the tension moments and the, in, you know, the moments of ego and insecurity, all these things were insanely, um, shallow and, um, cheap. So I mean, I I actually I saw it on a plane. I was I, I had been warned because all musicians, especially in jazz, were just uproarious about how bad it was. I mean, if you talk about that film in jazz circles, you literally you, 
stop. Uh, a year I put up with, with everyone <laughs> bashing Whiplash. And but, so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry, man. Basically, I just thought, it, 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 you know, if, if you're talking about some mentor that gets abusive with you, that, that has happened in all forms of education. Um, so, I mean, can I say that that's never happened? The guy that's like screaming obscenities at people throwing drum sets at them? I thought it was over the top. I personally have never heard of anyone going through that. But just the nature of the competitive thing, also like the, 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 that the magnum opus of a person is to get in the Lincoln Center jazz group. I mean, it's <laughs> hilariously off target. So, or like Buddy Rich would be a drum idol for people. It's just like the most square, you know, I thought it was actually very racist. I mean, I, I, I couldn't even get into how much there was not an honoring of African-American jazz drum tradition, which just annihilates the Buddy Rich perspective of drumming as far as I'm concerned. So, I mean, again, if I started going down the road of how bad Whiplash was and how offensive it was to me, we will never hear the end of <laughs> Well, then this is, then I, this is why I asked the question, and, and believe me, honesty is what um, I seek on hearsay culture, so I appreciate you saying that. So then, so given that you've said that, and we're coming into about, we have about seven minutes left. Um, this is what I call the unfair portion of the show, where I started asking questions that you don't have the ample time to answer that you did previously, right? We have, you, you've kind Kind of you've you've offered an interesting and and challenging uh, information world right to my listeners. You've got you've got popular films that win awards that you are panning as being woefully inac- inaccurate about drumming, and that's I think the best thing you've said about the film. You've got the flooding of information out there that makes it difficult for musicians to break through, assuming that their work isn't stolen, right? And then here you come with rational funk. And so I, I want to ask you this question in light of the world, and we didn't even get into here, and maybe I'm not going to get into now the role of technology in the business itself. I will, and maybe you want to respond to this. Um, you know, again, I am at best an amateur drummer, but when I was living in New York, I took drum lessons from uh, Michael Lauren, who was known certainly in the music world in New York and elsewhere as a drum as a drum teacher. And now I'm talking about around 1999, 2000, and he was bemoaning to me how much work was simply gone for drummers because of drum machines. Um, so all of that being put together what contribution ultimately would you like to make with rational funk that allows for greater understanding of music you've mentioned it as instructional you've mentioned humor what do you see as the challenge for creating rational funk in light of the information environment is and what do you would would you what would you want it to be its long-standing effect well number one i think that when you face certain levels of what you consider futile, like futility, then different possibilities arise. And sometimes when I'm teaching, um, you know, I, I will say, like, well, we really can't effectively teach improvising. So now that we know that, where do we go from here? Or, you know, I quoted, uh, I think I quoted this once even talking with you is the architect Bruce Mao. One of the great, great saying that he said, um, he tells people, like, now that we can do anything, what will we do? Um, you know, I, 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 what I hope is that sometimes people will see the ridiculousness of it as a as a means to get more serious, or to to actually see to pay attention to what actually needs to take place for you to love something like this. And you have to love it. You have to love it so much that you want to be um, 
you want to know it inside and out. You want to take the time to know the history of it. You want to check out the deepest music. You want to check out the deepest contributors in history to the music. And you want to also add to the dialogue, and you can. There is room to add to this dialogue. And the, even though the ridiculous nature sometimes of how even you said the laptop thing, hey, I would like to just finish. I didn't want to end that statement with saying I threatened to throw that guy out the window because <laughs> I actually had a story there that wasn't just I'm joking because that led beautifully into J.K. Simmons throwing the drum set at the kid. Yeah. I just simply wanted to say that I said that to him and I then said, I, I, you know, I offered to get this guy out of my class because he was disrupting it. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I just said, you know, whatever. And he went to the um, heads of the Stanford thing, and he said, I don't want to leave Dave's class. I want to be in Dave's class. Mm-hmm. He asked to stay. Mm-hmm. It was like it was like we had made some breakthrough with him, um, and he ended up playing great at the concert, and we made this breakthrough. And it wasn't like I was going to throw him out the window, but it was one of these moments of like where I had this like exasperation with this guy of like how do you access this thing that you're struggling accessing and sometimes it takes this sort of like willful painful experience to get in there and to to you know realize what your the limitations you put up well i think rational funk follows this line of it's it's parts of it are are very painful. They're they're actually quite painful for me to even watch. It's almost like when I first saw the the British Office, which I thought was one of the greatest things uh, ever made, the Ricky Gervais uh, show. I thought we've all been this this um, asinine. We've all been we've all had this moment of just saying the worst thing ever with, with this this moment of humiliation. It was so painful to watch. So hilarious. So brilliant that it exposed so much of all of our weaknesses. And in, and in doing that, it actually made me more self-aware in a healthier way. And I think that the show, in a way, is having an effect on me that way and having an effect on some of the people that I've talked to about it, where they're able to somehow, I'm not saying that this is the key to them getting deeper, but it is a beautiful thing to see somebody emasculate themselves on some level, like not take themselves so seriously, even though it's very obvious I have taken this stuff very seriously and had a very serious technical agenda as a musician my whole life. So, in many ways, you eradicate the, you know, you face the futility of some of these things and it feeds you or some, on some level. And this is, of course, a philosophical thing ancient. But I, I feel that in some ways that, that, that type of, you know, like... Um, facing these, facing how music can get out there, how do we make our way through the seas of all this stuff, seeing this thing and just knowing there's room to contribute to this dialogue, and sometimes you have to tear it apart, rebuild it, and, and this is, maybe that's what this show is kind of doing for me on some subliminal level. Dave, I would be remiss as, as we're about to close the show if I didn't ask you. You alluded to it a couple of times, some great work that's being done, great music's being done. If you're going to, uh, and I'll, I'll allude to old technology, if there's a six-CD changer uh, that we had years ago, uh, what would you recommend listeners get into or at least pay attention to of music that's currently being made now that, that you consider to be advancing our musical history and knowledge? Well, in jazz, right now, there's so much, I mean, and especially so much coming from all over the world. Um, I, I, I'm sure if you're a fan of jazz, I'm sure you've heard of the pianist Jason Moran, who I think is an effortless um, uh, creative spirit. And 
and he's made some very amazing music. He's a great guy, too, over the last uh, 15 years. So, of course, the great pianist Brad Meldow, the piano is in great hands right now all over the place. Vijay Iyer uh, and, and the perspectives that he has brought um, uh, to the music, a great pianist, a composer, who's brought um, certain uh, um, perspectives based in some of the 90s kind of Eve Coleman New York culture meets um, some some overtones of Indian classical music. There's so much music out there. So and, and then you know some of the old masters of the avant-garde and and great you know like Bill Frizzell still just making very compelling music and Tim Byrne the great saxophonist. And then you know so many. I, I mean I would have to say there there are so many true com- contributors to their generation right now. Craig Taborn the great pianist the keyboardist. Um, and, the, and a lot of these people I've gotten to play with or, or, or know personally, um, they're, they're wonderfully creative, uh, great spirits. And there's, you know, I mean, I, I'd have to, I'd, right there I just named several people that you should, if you're interested in where the, the music is at right now. But there are so many, um, even smaller labels and lesser known, that are making some of the heaviest music in the history of the music right now. So I would just say, you know, if you liked one thing that you heard, you know, there's so many, um, there's so much deep music out there right now. If you use these new channels of finding it, however you find it, I'm not sure you're going to find YouTube clips of a lot of these guys. But however you can find this music, I would, att- I would, I would remember that if it if it moves you, go see it live and support it as well, because it is truly like like people support public radio, like people support those things. These are truly like on the ground, real art experiences that people can have. Dave King, drummer for the Bad Plus, but more specifically for Hearsay Culture listeners, the founder and host of Rational Funk that you can find on YouTube. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Like I said, I, I, you know, I could have just justified this interview in my own mind because I'm such a fan of your music, but I think the overlap of the video podcast here has made you a unique and compelling guest on the show. I invite you to come back when you know in the future when you have a moment from your touring schedule um, and so. I haven't put you off through my questions, uh, but thank you so much today, Dave, for being oh, on the show. You. I really appreciate you being interested, and in the, the show needs all the help we can get, so thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I'll promote it. Uh, so this is uh, the last show for this winter quarter on KZSU FM schedule. Um, I don't do no, new shows during the interim, but coming up in the spring, we're going to have very exciting shows as, as unbelievably Hearsay Culture celebrates its 10th anniversary, having been launched when I was a fellow at Stanford back in May 2006. And always, you have a number of ways to listen to Hearsay Culture. You can get the show uh, 2 p.m. Pacific Time Fridays on KZSU Live or by going to the Stanford CIS webpage at cyberlaw.stanford.edu or by going to the iTunes engine uh, for CIS or by going to hearsayculture.com where you can get all 250-odd previous interviews as well as the upcoming schedule. As always, I welcome your comments, suggestions, and feedback at dave at hearsayculture.com or the contact page at hearsayculture.com. Thank you so much for joining us today on KZSU and Hearsay Culture. Please stay tuned to KZSU for more diverse programming and have a great day.